You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, February 21st, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Well, a year ago, this upcoming week, the CDC announced that COVID-19 was entering pandemic status, February 25th. Just a few weeks after that, I think it was March 13th, I should have checked between services, I think it was March 13th, it was announced that this virus would officially become a national emergency, and ever since, our collective way of life hasn't been the same. You know, most of the, I shouldn't say most, many of the prognosticators early on, and I would put myself in this category, to be honest with you, assumed that this threat would be the beginnings of our country putting aside many of its differences and collectively rallying together to deal with this threat to our way of life. But I was wrong, and so were all those prognosticators from the very beginning. And if that wasn't enough, that same week, a year ago, this week, The collective unity of our local body was threatened as Shelby got his diagnosis of cancer one week ago, the same week that COVID was announced last year. And so if cancer and COVID wasn't enough, it wouldn't be long before our national conscience and national unity would be shaken to the core in the aftermath of the shootings and the murders of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and Michael Brown and George Floyd, and as if bad couldn't get worse. All of this was occurring in arguably the most polarizing and fracturing presidential election of at least our lifetime, an election cycle that culminated in a group of rioters rioting into our nation's capital where some of those rioters invoked the name of Jesus as the instigation for their behavior. It's been a strange year. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, we've had a technological bellow of a fan, fanning into flame all of the divisions, all of the polarizations, all of the fires. So much so that I think you could argue that in the absence of so many of the sports we enjoy, our national sport became an obsession in figuring out through those technological means what everybody else was up to and what they were saying about all of these things that were going on, so much so that many people began to develop different scorecards based on how certain people responded and certain people acted. It's an interesting year. Let me ask those of you that are listening this morning, in the last 12 months, how often have you stopped to ask what the Lord is up to in all of this. Have you wondered whether he's as present in our ongoing crises 
as that person or those people that you secretly love to hate online? As the ones you so quietly think have ruined your last year? Well, now that I have your attention, this first Sunday of Lent, this season of self-examination, repentance, and and preparation even, I, I want us to focus the attention of our hearts to God's Word in 1 Samuel chapter 29 and 30. And I want us together to consider the Lord's Word for our lives in the midst of our crisis this morning. As you and I live in the times between our our. Revelation 7 hope of all peoples around the throne in unity celebrating the redemption of our lives by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and the Genesis 6 reality of everyone's hearts seeming to be set on nothing but self-interest and evil. The already and the not yet that we find ourselves in, what, what might the Lord's word here in 1 Samuel have to say to us this morning? Well, if you turn there and you begin to look at chapter 29, what you'll see very quickly is that the writer turns our attention back onto the life of David. David, who very much is in his own already and not yet season as well. It's been 16 to 18 years for David since he had been anointed by Samuel the prophet as the king of Israel, God's chosen man. But David has not yet been appointed to the throne. He's been living in this time between, and in this time between, he's been on the run for his life. And so to get you to chapter 29, let me just remind you, just a a few chapters back, you might remember if you were with us, in chapter 27, David has been running now probably 12 to 15 years at this point. He's been leading a group of men and their families that has been growing by the number every year. They've been hiding in forests, they've been hiding in caves, they've been in different strongholds, and everywhere they seem to go, somehow Saul's men find out where he is, and Saul comes to threaten him, and in chapter 27, David finally resolves to himself that at some point, if he stays where he is, Saul's going to kill him. And so he says in chapter 27, there is no good left for me here. And if you remember, that was a shocking admission on David's part because the way the writer wrote the stories for us, he was showing us something leading up to that point. In chapters 24, 25, and 26, we had repeated occurrences in David's life where he could have taken the easy path to the throne, taken Saul out, even had his own men do the work for him, assumed the throne that he had already been anointed for. But David held back. And he didn't just hold back, he he proclaimed he nor his men were to lay their hand against the Lord's anointed. Twice he had the opportunity, and he refrained, and he restrained. And we saw through chapters 24, 25, and 26 that David's righteousness before Saul, David's righteousness before Israel, and David's righteousness before the Lord were intact. And he reminded his men, and he reminded Saul, and he reminded the armies of Israel in those moments of God's faithfulness, And even through the words of Saul, Saul proclaimed God's promises to David. And so for three chapters, we were reminded of David's righteousness and God's faithfulness and David's confidence in God's faithfulness and provision. And then chapter 27 comes and David determines that Saul's going to kill him. There's no good left for him in the promised land of Israel. And so he goes over to the Philistine. We watch David in chapter 27 put his trust in the Philistines. Saul gave up the chase 
So in one sense, it worked. David earned the, the favor and the security of the Philistine king of Gath, Achish, got his own land, but he did it through deception. So David was safe from Saul, but at what cost? Personally, morally, spiritually. And the story bled right into the beginning of chapter 28, just the first two verses. David's out raiding, the king is happy, and the king comes to David and says, David, the time's come, we're going to go to war with Israel, and you and your men, you're going to be with me. And David's deception has left him in the horns of a dilemma here, and it gets worse. The king looks at him and says, David, not only are your men going to go with me, you're going to be my right-hand man. You're going to be my bodyguard. You're literally, in the Hebrew, going to guard my head. You got a problem with that? David said, no. In fact, watch what we can do. And in the very next verse, the writer switches the story and goes to Saul. We're left. Hanging right there on a cliff. What's David going to do? Is David going to renege on his promises? Is he going to renege on his word? Is he going to raise his sword Quite possibly Goliath's sword that he's kept since that battle against Saul and against the people that he's been anointed to shepherd? What's he going to do? Well, chapter 29 brings us back to that point. It's going to bring us back to this tension that needs to be resolved. David foolishly sought salvation from Saul through the Philistines, but now he needs to be saved from them. So chapter 29, it picks up here. Now, the Philistines had gathered all of their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that's at Jezreel. So we're going back a few days from chapter 28 before they got to the final place where they were going to do battle. And verse 2 says, As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? Now, it would be helpful if you can imagine it in your mind. If, if you've seen the movie Braveheart, you can kind of get a bit of an image of what's going on here. Philistia, Philistia, the area of the Philistines, it was actually five city-states. Each city-state had their own king and their own commanders of the armies of that city-state. And if you remember in Braveheart, when they would go into these battles, these different tribes would all gather together and their armies would kind of line up across the hillside and across the valley and the leaders of those tribes would stand and watch the different groups gather and, and come to, into place and muster together. That's what's happening. The five kings and their military leaders have gathered and they're watching the armies begin to gather here, muster together all the armies to go to battle against Israel. And some of the commanders look at it and go, time out. What's he doing here? Why, why is he and all of the men that are with him, why are they here? Achish, you've got some explaining to do. So Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. The commanders, these are the military men. These are the men of war. They get angry at the king. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send that man back. 
He needs to return to the place to which you'd assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. Lest he and all these fighting men that we've heard about all of their raids in the last 16 months, lest they turn and become an adversary to us in the middle of the fight. Uh Uh-uh. Send him back. How could this fellow, David, reconcile himself to his Lord? Lowercase l, meaning Saul, his king. How could he reconcile himself to Saul? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is this not David, of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. You get it? We're not going into battle with this guy and his men. That's too risky. This guy is a national treasure to Israel, and his fame is for killing ten thousands of us. Achish, you're an idiot. Send him back. How can this guy reconcile himself? He's the garter of your head. Wouldn't it be by bringing it back to his king? So, verse 6, Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you've been honest. And to me, it seems right that you should march out and end with me in the campaign. For I found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me this day. Nevertheless, the Lord do not approve of you. Now, we know from the story that David has been deceiving Achish all along. But Achish here is going to spend the middle portion of this entire chapter testifying to David's loyalty and honesty. We'll come back to it later, but... Verse 7, it says, so go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And as you read the story, you think to yourself the dilemma that David was in, and now the way of escape that he has here at the hands of Achish and these Philistine kings, David's got to be breathing a deep sigh of relief, right? Like, whew. He doesn't have to go into battle against Israel. And determine in his heart in that moment, is he going to raise his sword against his own people or is he going to risk the threat of destruction by turning on the Philistines in the middle of the battle? He gets to remain out of the whole thing. Well, verse 9, or verse 8, David says to Achish, wait a minute, what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day that I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? What's wrong with you, David? Shut up. Quit talking. You're free. You've been given a way to not lose the trust of Achish or right standing before your people. Verse 9, Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us into battle. And just note, we'll come back to it. This is the third time a Gentile ruler has proclaimed the innocence of the Lord's king. Come back later. Verse 10. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning, and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So, the chapter ends right here with two big movements of people. 
the Philistines are going to go north into the Jezreel Valley where chapter 28 and chapter 31 took place. We looked at those the other week, right? They're going to go north to Jezreel. They're going to face Saul and they're going to face the Israelites. David and his men are going to go south back to Ziklag. Now, here's the thing. We'll, come, we'll, we'll kind of weave this through a little bit as we read the next section of chapter 30. The distances between those two places, the distances between where the Philistines had mustered here and where they're going to go to Jezreel and where David's going to go to Ziklag, they're roughly the same distance, which means it's altogether possible that both groups, the Philistines going to Jezreel, David and his men going to Ziklag, arrive at those two places roughly around the same time. So what we read in chapter 28 into chapter 31, those two parts, are going to happen roughly at the same time as what we read in chapter 30. It's an interesting thing to keep in your mind. We'll come back to it here in a little bit about why that matters. So we'll keep reading, though. Look what happens down south. When David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. Now when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the men who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And so up to this point, David has been saved from having to fight his own people, saved from having to fight the Philistines, but now he faces a misery that's unimaginable. He returns home with his men to find their city is in flames. Their families have been taken not killed, taken, to be enslaved. David had led these men for years on the run from Saul, in the forest, in the stronghold, in the cave. He led them out of Israel into Philistia. He led them on all their prosperous raids as they put roots down there for 16 months in Ziklag. But now, now David is going to have to lead them in grief. And the writer says that David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength. David's wives had also been taken captive. In verse 6, David was greatly distressed. That's not just an emotional statement, that's a statement of circumstance. He's greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul each for his sons and daughters. Just keep in your mind, who are the people that are with David? Lest you get the wrong idea. Who are the people that are with him? His soldiers, his warriors, the ones we've read about throughout the story, the ones who fled to him, who were ambidextrous archers able to hit at hundreds of yards. Those swordsmen, those bitter, angry, fighting men, That's who's turning on David. Dale Davis is a great Old Testament scholar and pastor. He said, here is a a sobering and disturbing picture for God's people. 
Are there not times in life when you think it can't get any worse? Well, 1 Samuel chapter 30 says, yes, it can. There are times when you conclude that your present trouble is the last straw. And you simply can't take any more. Sounds about like 2020, right? Well, then comes Ziklag. The last straw after the last straw. Sometimes we're tempted to add another line to Psalm 30, verse 5. He said, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning until disaster strikes the next afternoon. David, who had escaped from Saul by fooling the Philistines, escaped from having to go battle to battle against his countrymen and battle against the Philistines, is now facing the threat of being stoned by his own men who are not going to miss. Their bitterness of soul has very quickly turned to blame. And when you read it, you've got to be honest. And in one sense, they're right to blame David. In one sense, it really is David's fault that they're here. He's the one that led them into Philistia. He is the one that led them on all of the raids to those neighboring southern villages and territories of which the Amalekites were part. It's right, in some sense, for them to put the responsibility of where they are and the circumstance they're in at David's feet. But killing him isn't the right answer. This is the point in the morning where we're going to start going from simply a really good story to a sermon, all right? And the first way we do that is by recognizing the warning that God gives us here in the story. The warning is simply this, don't be so easily fooled into believing that your sins, however small, marginal, or justifiable you make them in your mind, don't be so easily fooled into believing that they have no consequences. Paul would write to the church in Galatia later on, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Friends, sin has consequences in our lives. Sometimes, and we'll see here in just a second, those consequences are a bit delayed. Sometimes those consequences are multiplied. And more often than we ever want to actually admit or even imagine, those consequences impact other people and our relationships. You see, yes, it is David's leadership that led them into Philistia, that led them on the raids. And there is a responsibility that David bears for the circumstances that they're in. But it's very important to remember Who were the people that raided Ziklag and burned it down and took their families? Do you remember what the story said? It was the Amalekites. The Amalekites were the first people to attack God's people on their way out of Egypt in the wilderness. It was there that God pronounced his judgment on the Amalekites. 
and said a day is coming when he is going to blot them from the face of the earth. Now, in 1 Samuel, we've learned how God was going to fulfill that judgment on the Amalekites. God came to Saul and told Saul to bring the judgment of the Lord on the Amalekites to kill them. But if you remember the story, we were reminded of it last week from the dead by Samuel. Saul did not obey the word of the Lord. Saul kept for himself the best of the livestock and he kept the king of the Amalekites. And for his own reinterpretation of God's word, for his own effort to justify his disobedience, oh, I was going to keep the best of the animals to sacrifice. For his own effort to make whatever disobedience to the Lord's word he felt like was actually respectable, God removed the kingdom from him. And Samuel reminded him last week in chapter 28 from the grave, this was the undoing of Saul and the judgment of God. So who is it now that raids Ziklag? It's the Amalekites, those that Saul did not wipe out in disobedience to the Lord. Saul's disobedience, Saul's sin is now impacting David and his men. Don't be so easily deceived, friends. Our sin has consequences. Sometimes it might be delayed. Sometimes it's going to be multiplied, but it always impacts our relationships. So let me ask you this at this point in the, in the morning. What, what respectable sins, what justifiable alterations to the Word of God have you made in your heart? Are you tolerating in your life? How might those sins be affecting your relationships? Your relationship with God, your relationship even with yourself, and your relationship with others. But that's not the the sum point of the story. There's a second point of reflection for us here at this point in the story. And that's simply this. How, How do you respond when things go from bad to worse? When life does go from what couldn't be any worse to, oh yeah, it actually is. When the last straw isn't the last straw. We saw in chapter 28 that Saul was in deep distress, much like David. He was facing a circumstance beyond his ability. The Philistines had mustered around him with the full forces of their army, and the Lord wasn't speaking to him. And in fact, don't again forget the chronology. Saul is very well facing this deep distress around the same time that David is facing his. We saw last week where Saul went in his distress as he turned to the witch at Endor. We see where David's men go with their distress as their grief quickly morphs into bitterness that flowers into blame and they're ready to kill David. But verse 6 reminds us, verse 6, the second part, David, in his distress, strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now, friends, that marks a huge shift in the story up to this point. Remember, in chapter 27, David unexpectedly had determined in his heart that there was no good left for him in the land of promise, that surely he was going to die at the hands of Saul against all evidence to that fact. 
all the ways that God had protected him, had guided him, had cared for him, he had determined that Saul was going to get him, and so he went to Philistia for salvation. And for the last 16 to 18 months, from the time that David did that to this point, there is no mention of the Lord on the lips of David. We have no Psalms coming out of this period of David's life. This truly was one of the darker spiritual seasons in the life of David. But here, in his moment of distress, we find David strengthening himself in his God. And that sentence says so much and so little at the same time. It's so sparse in detail, yet every single phrase is just pregnant with implication. I desperately, I think many of you are in the same camp, I I desperately wish that right there we had a much more clear and detailed description of exactly what it is that David did in that moment. But the more I thought about it this week, the more I was grateful to the Lord for not giving it to us. Actually, it's very gracious on his part. Because if you're anything like me, you're, you're very prone to look for mechanical patterns And if we could find that this is exactly what David said, the words he said, the order he said it in, and the way and the tone and all those things, then when I find myself in my moment, I will trust in that pattern rather than in the one that David trusted. And so we don't get much detail about exactly what it looked like for David to do this, but we get all kinds of things to learn from. The first is just the way the writer uses the word, but... But grammatically implies a contrast, right? Naturally, our mind thinks of the bigger story. Oh, he's comparing what David did in distress to what Saul did. Well, yes, that's there. But more specifically, it's being compared in this very moment between David and his men. David, along with his men in coming to Ziklag, they, they all grieved, poured out their grief wept until they had no more tears to cry, vented all of those emotions, yes and amen. Nothing wrong with that. No doubt, responsibility for the situation was exposed. No doubt, at some point in that response, it became very clear to everyone there who the responsible party was, and that responsibility was laid right there on David. No problem there either. But grieving the situation, weeping over the situation, clarifying responsibility for the situation is not the same thing as strengthening yourself in the Lord. And I want to be very clear because I think in our day and in our time inside and outside the church, we We tend to stop right there when things go from bad to worse. And we find ourselves in these moments. No, you shouldn't bottle up the emotions. You should let them out. You should deal with them. You should own them. You should face them. There are circumstances and situations and trials in life that are worth weeping over and grieving over. Yes and amen. Yes, there are responsible parties. And sometimes it's helpful to identify those instincts and those situations that cause these things. And it's understandable to do that. But that's not the same thing 
as strengthening yourself in the Lord. But, it's a contrast. That's what his men did and David did with them, but David went further. It's helpful to pay attention to the words that he used. You might remember if you've been with us in this whole series that there was an earlier time in David's life when he was on the run from King Saul. and He faced a crisis like he had over and over again. And in secret, his friend, his his brother in soul, Jonathan, came to him at the risk of his own life. And David was on the edge. And the writer tells us that it's there in secret that Jonathan came to David. And do you remember what it said? He strengthened David's hands in the Lord. How did he do that? He reminded David of the faithfulness of their God and of the promises of God to David. He literally took David's feeble heart and put it in the sure hands of their God. And the writer says he strengthened David in the Lord. David here, and along with his weeping, along with his grieving, along with the responsibility being laid on his feet and the acceptance of wrong in the situation, began to encourage himself in the faithfulness of his God and the promises of his God. He didn't have his home to look to, his wife to look to, or even his friends to look to, but he had his Lord, Yahweh, the God of covenant faithfulness, the God who has been with him and never left him, the God who has provided for him, protected him all along this way. David was preaching to himself. Now you can go back and listen to the morning we spent on chapter 27. We spent a whole portion of that sermon talking about what it is to preach to ourselves, what that actually looks like, and how David began to find himself in the predicament he was in because he was listening too much to the voice of his own discouragement and fear and doubt and not preaching to himself for the faithfulness of his God. But I will remind you, and I will say that in the context of this story, something that we said back in chapter 27 still holds true. One of the ways that you and I strengthen ourselves in the Lord as we remind ourselves of his faithfulness, his character, and his promises in the midst of great distress is through what the church has historically called the language of lament. I think we get lament wrong because we hear lament and we naturally think weeping, wailing, sorrow, blame, and we stop. But that's not biblical lament. Biblical lament is expressing the grief, the heartache, the pain, crying the tears, going to our God with those things, being honest about the heartache and the grief in the place where we find ourselves in when bad went to worse. But biblical lament always goes from that weeping, that grieving, that owning, that confessing, that repentance and that turning always goes towards greater trust in the faithfulness of God, greater hope in the promises of God, greater delight in the word of God. As one writer said, biblical lament is a crying out to God in pain that always leads to trust, always leads to hope, always leads to faith in God's promises. Sometimes that lament is personal. 
That's what you see in David right there. It's David. He had to strengthen and encourage himself. Sometimes it's corporate. You see it in the life of God's people throughout the Bible. There is often a lament like this amongst God's people as a group. Sometimes it involves repentance when the recognition of responsibility is there and the turning from that sin and to God in trust and hope is part of that cry. I think that's happening with David here. But friends, one way that you and I strengthen ourselves in the Lord our God, especially in times like ours where bad always seems to keep going to worse, is through lament. Praying in a pain that leads to greater trust in God's promises. Anything short of that is not strengthening ourselves in the Lord. And it will always, trust me, maybe not immediately, but at some point, it will always end up in greater despair, greater discouragement, and greater frustration. Always. Friends, the fruit of David's strengthening himself in the Lord. Grieving, crying, weeping, repenting, turning to the Lord. The fruit that we see right in the story is David seeking out the sure word of God for himself. Look at verse 7. David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band, or shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. You see, David knew where to get this sure word from the Lord. He went to the priest, the one who mediated the presence of God amongst the people. Saul, in his despair, went to a witch. Perhaps at the same time that David was strengthening himself from the Lord and seeking God's voice to the priest. It's important at this point in the story to remember, Christian, in our bad to worse, in our cascading crisis over and over and over again, we don't have an ephod, but we don't need one because we have a greater high priest than Abiathar. The writer of Hebrews says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Because we have Jesus, he says, we can confidently draw near to the throne of grace, that we can receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. In our crises, in our distress, in our cries, in our lament, we might not get precise answers to our questions from God but he promises to always give us the grace we need to help. And that's usually, if we're really honest with ourselves, what we need more. The more I thought about it, the more I realized I don't often need information. I need the enduring grace of God in my heart. I need the renewing grace of God in my heart. I need the reminder of God's ongoing faithfulness and patience to me in my heart that I might show that kind of patience and faithfulness to others in the midst of this. I don't often need information I need his endurance, his grace to help in that time of need, and he's promised to give it. Oh, friends, this should encourage your souls. Well, at this point, the story just speeds up really quick, all right? Verses 9 through 20, it goes quite literally at a rapid pace. 
David, after getting the word from the Lord about pursuing those who had done this to his homeland and his family, he gets up, he takes his men, and he immediately obeys God's word. He begins to pursue. But remember, he has no idea who did it. Now, we know who did it, but David doesn't know. So he and his men take off. They go off riding. Now, remember, they've cried so much, they don't have any more tears to cry. They had already traveled three days to get home. They immediately turn now, and they take off again. And they get to the brook of Besor, the writer says, and some of the men were just too tired. So David splits the team into two, 400 and 200. 200 stay back and 400 go on. If you keep reading the story, they tear out into the, into the open expanse and they come across a man who's on the edge of death, dehydrated, famished. They bring him in. They give him water. They give him food. He begins to revive and they ask him, where are you from? Who are you? And he says, I'm an Egyptian. I worked for an Amalekite. And we had been out raiding. And I fell ill. And they basically left him there to die. Because he was of no use to them anymore. But listen to what he says. Verse 14. We made a raid against the Negev of the Hetherites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. Now he knows. Now David's got the answer. He knows who was responsible for what happened to his home. So David says to him in verse 15, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you down to this band. And it's at this point in the story, you're probably thinking to yourself, boy, David sure was lucky to come across this man who had been discarded in the desert by his Amalekite master. Come to think of it, if we think about it in the context of chapters 29 and 30, boy, David sure was lucky that he had to pass in front of the commanders of the other Philistia states and that they would recognize who he was and send him back. Man, he didn't have to go into battle against Israel or go into battle and turn on the Philistines. He got a way of escape. And then he just happened to find this guy. As as things moved from bad to worse with each passing day, Is it really that David just kept getting really lucky? Friends, it's here, right here, that we get really the largest lesson for us in our time in God's Word, and that's this. Even though God is not explicitly mentioned here, He is there. He is still the same God turning the hearts of kings and leaders and rulers like streams of water in His hands. God is no innocent bystander in this story in chapter 29 and 30 any more than he's an innocent bystander over our COVID crisis or our cultural crisis. In fact, the writer of 1 Samuel has been inspired by the Lord and the Lord is using his skillful abilities in writing to weave together one of the most purposeful examples of the providence of God. The providence of God, which is nothing more than God's purposeful sovereignty purposefully providing for and sustaining and governing the world. In fact, I love it the way David Mathis says it. He says it better than I can. He says, God not only rules and foresees, but he sees to it that his purposes ripen in his perfect, world-confounding ways and on his timetable. In his perfect, world-confounding ways on his timetable, David is held back from the battle. 
the Egyptian is found in the darkness of the desert. David never could have found the responsible party if God hadn't provided that man to lead him. And as you finish out this part of the story, you'll see the same God who brought David low in order to restore his heart was fully capable of restoring back to David and his men everything that had been taken. That's what happens in verses 16 through 20. That Egyptian takes David and his men to a place where they can overlook and they see the Amalekites spread out across the land and they see all their stuff. And the writer says the Amalekites are dancing and feasting and celebrating that they just got away with the biggest deal, right? And then it says in verse 17, David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day and not a man escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. But David recovered all the Amalekites had taken. He rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, small or great, son or daughter, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought it all back. The providential God of saving and restoring grace. It's the same one you and I have to strengthen ourselves in today. He is the same one who is committed even now. Even now, in the midst of our bad to worse, he is the same one committed to seeing his purposes ripen in his world confounding ways on his and his alone timetable. You see, all of this is unfolding to happen so that as the story continues, God's anointed king, the man after his own heart, will take the throne that he has been anointed for. And the story of the Lord providing for his people one who would come, who would defeat the enemies of God's people and establish his throne forever, that story was moving forward. See, David came in the world-confounding timetable in ways that only God could prepare. Just as in generations to come, when the fullness of time came, the greater David, our final king would come. Jesus, he, he too, like David, would be strengthened by the Father through the Spirit for the task that was ahead of him, but it wasn't because he was doubtful. And he wasn't about to face the Amalekites or the Philistines. He strengthened him for the task ahead of him of going to the cross, where he would defeat the enemies of Satan's sin and death. And just like David, Jesus would be rejected by the leaders of his day and by his own people. Just like David, both would be declared innocent three times by the Gentile ruler of the day. Achish would declare David innocent three times and Pilate three times of Jesus. And God rescued David, as we saw, from himself and from destruction. And God will go on to rescue his son through death and resurrection so that anyone who would believe upon Jesus as king and as savior, repenting of their sins, would be rescued through him and enjoy Jesus as a greater high priest through whom we have access to the throne of grace. Hallelujah, the song says. What a Savior. Friends, let me ask you this morning, have you been saved by this King? 
Do you believe that he died in your place to bring you to God? That he suffered on the cross on your behalf? That he and he alone can make you right before God, holy by his blood? My prayer this morning is that you would. And if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Christ, let me remind you that you were saved in the most unforeseen, unexpected, world-confounding way. The very Son of God coming, dying in your place for your sin. Take some time this week to consider the various ways that His hand has restrained you from your own foolishness. Even if it felt frustrating to you at the time, you can clearly look back and see how his providential, saving, gracious hand rescued you from yourself. And how in his kind providence he has strengthened you time and again through his word, through the hands of a friend like Jonathan, through the encouraging words of another like Abigail. Friends, we have a greater high priest and we get the privilege of seeking him that we might see him, of enjoying him that we might be strengthened by him, that according to his good plan, we would increasingly reflect something of him to this watching world. This is the Christian life. This is your highest priority today and tomorrow. Friends, the God of restoring providential grace has not taken the last year off. He is the same God yesterday and today. Will you seek him that you might see him to be strengthened by him and see just what he's done? Let me pray for us this morning as we prepare to respond to God's word. Lord, as everything around us changes at a breakneck speed, it's hard to remember that you don't change. Your faithfulness is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. That you are continuing to move your story of redemption forward. As things go from bad to worse and our limited vision of our everyday lives, Lord, help us to remember that you're not absent, you are present, ripening your purposes in your time for your glory. Lord, help us. Help us when we feel the distress of crises after crises. Help us as we weep and we run out of tears to cry. Help us as we see our own responsibility and our own sin and our own circumstance, help us to not give in then, but to strengthen ourselves in your faithfulness and in your grace to us through your Son. We ask this morning that you would do that work in our lives for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.